Welcome to Founding Impact, where we talk about impact startup ecosystem in Europe. I'm Maciej Gałkiewicz. And I'm Kasia Zalewska. We are Impact Angel Investors from Ragnarsson. Hello guys, welcome again to the next episode of Founding Impact. And today our guest is Adrian Delecker from Luke Hoffman Institute. And we're going to talk about super fascinating topic about what nature conservation and business might have in common. Adrian, thank you very much for joining us today. Could you please maybe start with um, introducing yourself and what is it that you're doing? <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. Um, I am head of strategy and development at the Luke Hoffman Institutes, um, which actually is a little bit of the uh, intersection of, of the business mentality and the conservation sector. Um, the Institute is trying to be a catalyst for game-changing Uh, initiatives on conservation. The premise is that we're losing nature, we're losing species, uh, and business as usual won't suffice. Um, so the Luke Hoffman Institute was set up to try and rattle the, the, the status quo. Okay, cool. And uh, I think uh, you're doing quite a nice job uh, assessing by the activities you're, uh, you're involved with. So I know you're quite busy right now with uh, various projects. And one of them is actually about how the business might uh, be helpful to nature conservation. But we're going to get back to that uh, in a second. I think it might be very useful and valuable to actually understand um, Why actually we need to preserve the nature? What's the essence of nature conservation? Why it's so important? Okay. Um, well, I would say that we need to do it because nature is beautiful. Um, it, it might be a surprising answer immediately. There's very pragmatic reasons to save nature, and I have a feeling we'll be talking about those. Um, <laughs> human society would not exist without nature. Uh, we would not be where we are without nature. But in answer to the question, why should we um, conserve nature or have nature thrive? I, I would say that, you know, because it's, it's, it, it's a moral issue. It's almost a philosophical issue. Nature spawned the human race. And right now we're struggling to coexist with, with earth. Um, so I personally very much enjoy being outdoors. Um, I think that nature is beautiful. Um, but there is that deeper sense of, If humans can't coexist with the environment that created them, then you know it'll be hard to imagine humans coexisting uh, together. So, until humans are at peace with nature, I don't think we can be at peace with each other. Um, that's the you know more high level reason why um, I am, and I think my colleagues who work in conservation uh, work in conservation. But of course, there's a lot of very pragmatic reasons, and I think um, we we should get to those. Um, Because, as I said, society would, would uh, not function and certainly would not be where we are today if we hadn't benefited from all the um, things, we call them ecosystem services, that um, nature provides to us. Yeah, because I have this feeling that uh, in common mind, like nature conservation equals like, okay, we have to save tigers because there will be no tigers anymore. But what actually means that we need more species, that we need those tigers in the jungle, that is very important and not only in terms of like non-material values, like ethics or having some nice uh, views, but it's very important, crucial actually for the whole ecosystem And at the end, also humanity, humanity and people and economy and like everything else, why the, the nature is such important. Yeah. yeah, I referred earlier to ecosystem services, which is which is a really wonky term, which which struggles when you when you go outside uh, to 
decision makers to the business world. Uh, it's it's a it's it's a combination of word which which seems very clever when you're when you're a conservationist because it, it it talks about exactly what you're talking about is the the number of benefits uh, that come from having a certain habitat or a certain species. There's been studies. There's a very compelling video that circulated when they reintroduced the wolf in, in Yellowstone National Park in the U.S. Uh, an aerial shot of the park. The park just changed dramatically because the wolf was keeping in check some of the herbivores. The herbivores were therefore lower in number. Therefore, there was some undergrowth. Therefore, there was more water. Therefore, the forest retreated and, and, and it physically changed the space. So it has, has all these effects. And, um, you know, at, at the risk of saying something provocative, these charismatic species, you mentioned tigers. There's, you know, we could probably, I hesitate to say this publicly, but we, we could probably survive without them. I mean, it's, 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 it's not necessarily, you know, technology might be able to, to, to change some of these things, but it's the whole mass behind. It's the forest. It's the natural habitats. It's the watersheds. It's the climate. It's all of those things together. And to go back to my earlier answer, you know, what we need is to understand those better and to live in harmony with those systems. So for example, a forest um, keeps the water, which is good for agriculture. That's fairly, you know, easy to understand. Um, although in some places it's very hard to understand. The short-term rewards of chopping down the forest for agriculture are so much more than the long-term rewards of 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 the of the rainfall. Um, that's a problem, but it's it's relatively easy to understand. But there's all sorts of linkages with food, with health, with water, with air quality, with security, even. Um, so a few years ago, I was I was involved in a in a project uh, around illegal wildlife hunting, and we looked at the security element because you had to appeal to nations to do something about this, and it wasn't just about the elephants dying, but there was all sorts of of studies demonstrating the impact. And a, a, a more indirect link is something like uh, on security, the weight of a, an elephant tusk is worth is worth the same as gold. So. The incentive is there. And what happens is that the armed groups know this and it's the same more or less, at least there's overlap, armed groups that do um, terrorism, other criminal activities, and the routes used for the ivory um, and other and other commodities being smuggled is the same routes for arms trafficking, for human trafficking, etc. So there's very real linkages. It's not It's not completely abstract, but some of them are more obvious than others. So what you're saying is that uh, it's it's a chain reaction for the ecosystem. It's it's not like we missed maybe two or, or I don't know ten different species. It's like the the influence it influences the whole ecosystem and everything changes because of that. And it's difficult to predict those those changes as well. And obviously it influences the quality of life also for humans. Yeah, exactly. I Got mean, it. So. Call them tipping points too, and people are sort of familiar with the tipping point in climate climate change, a sort of a point of no return, which is very scary. There are tipping points in ecosystems too, yeah. And uh, is there like um, I don't know, maybe five the most important dimensions that we should be looking at? Uh, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is biodiversity as one of them. So the measure of how many different uh, spe species we have. Uh, but are there any other important dimensions that 
we should take into account when we think about nature conservation? We could. Um, I, there's a debate that the Luke Hoffman Institute was involved in a while ago, which was, did we make ourselves a disservice in 1992 when there was the Rio conferences and we split these topics, the issue of environment into discrete topics like climate change and biodiversity and desertification? We created these silos, but actually, you know, there is one global ecosystem, it's planet Earth. And actually, even that's dependent on an external ecosystem. Um, and so if, if you start sort of creating categories and silos, I, I almost fear like we're, we're, it's, it's, it's probably not the right way to look at it. It's actually the kind of the opposite. Biodiversity and climate change, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, everything trickles mm -hmm. down from that. So within those things, like in climate change, you can say, well, there's climate change mitigation, which is how do we avoid emissions? Climate change adaptation, how do we avoid, um, suffering from the cause, the consequences of climate change and, and adapt? Within biodiversity, yes, there's, you know, there's, there's agricultural land use, um, there's invasive species, there's all sorts of, of, of sub activities. And you need specialists and you need that. But in the end, it's, yeah, it's, it, it, it might also be doing a disservice because you really have to look at these things holistically. And hence also the problem because these, these things are, uh, become so complicated, um, that, that it kind of blows the mind and, and you have to start somewhere. And unlike climate change, where you have got these global units that are floating around, you've got parts per million, you've got kilowatts, you've got carbon, you've got these things, even Celsius, you don't have that for biodiversity. Biodiversity is very local. Um, I talked about a global ecosystem, but the reality is that the impacts of biodiversity are very, very local. What works in Yellowstone doesn't necessarily work in, in Virunga National Park. And Uh, uh, and so it's, it's very difficult to, to measure those things, to measure impact and to look at it in a, in a, in a sort of a global way. So it complicates the answer to your question. I understand from it that it's, it doesn't make sense to isolate the problem into, or like segregate it into specific, um, topics because you need to think about it holistically. Um, I'm asking this question because like the first thing to, which comes to my mind is, When we look at different companies at different startups, we try to assess the level of impact that they can bring to the table. And usually this kind of assessment is, is great if you have some like specific numbers. Okay, so uh, maybe food waste is going to be lower. Maybe uh, CO2 emission is going to be reduced. Uh, maybe biodiversity index or some kind of a number could be improved because of the uh, the, the actions of, 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 of those companies. So... Um, I know that I understand it doesn't make sense just to look at one thing, but is it still doable to um, to measure specific things and based on it, like make different kind of uh, decisions and and plan different yeah. actions? No, absolutely. There are there are different causes, for example, for biodiversity loss and land use is is, is very high up there. Climate change is also high uh, up there. Um, invasive species are are much lower, so you can you can you can see exactly where you're going to have the most impact. And you can do that in a very academic way. Um, there's also pollution and so on. Um, and, and it is helpful, but only if you can kind of wrap it up in a way that's communicable, in, in my view, in a way that's communicable at the end. Because um, you can have a lower carbon footprint, but a negative biodiversity footprint, for example, there are trade-offs sometimes. So you have to be, you have mm -hmm. to be a little bit uh, careful of those things. So if you look at something in complete, an impact measurement in complete isolation of the whole thing, then you actually might, you might not be actually having a positive impact. You're just reporting on 
one of the impact measures. So one of the projects that the Hoffman Institute has been involved in, um, that I was involved in, that I'm quite proud of, is what we call the Multidimensional Biodiversity Index. You talk about this, the, the, the state of species. We've got a lot of those numbers. Um, a lot of NGOs or, or um, international organizations have those numbers, uh, sometimes more um, more precise than, than others in different locations. But what we don't have is the overall impact and the the effect of biodiversity on um, policy, on society, and on economies. And so the multidimensional biodiversity index was a very is because it's happening now. And there's four pilot countries um, and a global project um, is precisely trying to do what you're asking, Massier, but also how do you communicate that to an audience? So if I tell you what what does twenty degrees feel like? You have you've got an idea, you know. It, it, what mm-hmm. do you, what do you what do you think eighteen degrees feels like? You you've got a surprisingly good idea. If I ask you what the temperature is outside, you without having looked at the weather, you'll have a pretty good idea. What is the state of biodiversity? Not good. I mean, if 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 WWF has this uh, um, Living Planet report that comes out every year, um, the latest stat, which is quite similar. The trend is is unfortunately not changing. And minus 68% of species lost. That's our thermometer. That's what we have. But that that's only, if you scratch the surface, uh, monitored invertebrate species. Um, and and it, it's, it's not a great picture. And it also doesn't tell you how can we change that trend. So um, so I think those are, in a way, some of the, the harder questions uh, is how do you, how do you um, communicate that to the everyday person and to decision makers and to business leaders, to found to founders, to to investors, etc. Mm-hmm. I think like uh, the communication is one thing, but if we look broader, then the problem comes from like who's involved in nature conservation up until now. As we know already, that's quite obvious. Business is not one of the stakeholders there. There is like a academia scientists, uh, there is nonprofit, there are like uh, the charity organizations and government, obviously. So that's something that sounds quite uh, not normal for regular people. So they also don't really get involved. And obviously for business up until now, there was no reason to get involved. And why actually? Why, why is the reason? What's the reason that there were no, that we don't really have any success stories of cooperation between one and another? Um, it's a, it's a tough question. I, it, it, it might be changing somewhat. I mean, there's this ESG for big established companies, environmental, social, and governance, um, which is quite promising because it's increasingly used. It's increasingly expected. Um, but it's also easily abused. It's also confusing. So we're back in the sort of the communication uh, thing, and, and it's it's very um, difficult uh, and costly for for a big multinational with a large and diffuse global supply chain to to adequately monitor um, things that aren't these global units like kilowatt hours and carbon are not easy, but relatively easy compared to the amount of elephants that you've killed. I mean, it's, it's, you know, when you get to that granular level, it's, it's really complicated. If you're at the ecosystem, natural habitats, okay, if it's deforestation, maybe that's a little bit easier. Um, but to date, I think one of the reasons, I would venture to say that one of the reasons why business hasn't been so involved or, or, or hasn't been involved in a positive way, it's really hard to make a case for the revenue for, 
um, for biodiversity, for, for nature. So um, we talked about once the, the, the return on investments and um, talk about, for example, a forest that's being cut down in order to give way for agriculture. Well, the return on investment in the short term is obvious. I mean, you can you could do it with a spreadsheet. You could do it preemptively. You could do it afterwards. The return on investment, if you don't chop down that forest, you can do it academically. You can you, you won't be you won't be as precise, but you can do it. You can estimate rainfall and you can give that an economic value. But who captures that? And and that we haven't really done. I mean, there there's some innovation in the financial sector for bonds and, and so on. I'm a little bit skeptical of efforts to date, but it but it's promising. There's 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 things being created there, and that's good. But we still haven't really figured out how to capture a return on investment for something that's alive as opposed to to debt, unfortunately. So we know, I mean, the IMF of all places has estimated that um, uh, the great white whale is um, uh, is worth $2 million, I think is what they said. And that's based on the carbon sequestration. It's based on various ecosystem um, that they that they they create by just by living and defecating and all these things. Okay, that's great. And that, that's very useful for communication. Now we're, that's, that's a measure that people understand. Two million. Okay. I know what two million mm-hmm. is. Um, but who captures that? It's, it's not capturable right now. So business, I think, has a really, um, important role. And I would venture to say particularly innovative founders, because I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of sort of big established businesses, um, sort of retrofitting, but those clever, founders that can try and crack that and find a way to operationalize that i think there's potentially a very lucrative market but that's that hasn't really been um done yet it's really hard um in in the conservation sector there's a very clear business model that works and demonstrated and proved it's tourism so if you if you think of the gorilla um and there's plenty of examples but if you want to see a gorilla in rwanda you pay i think it's fifteen hundred dollars um, maybe $2,000. It's a lot of money. That actually has meant that the gorilla population in Rwanda has increased. It's one of the rare success stories. There, that's, that's, a, that's, a really, that's a business model. And you can be a business uh, entrepreneur, not, not, just, not just managing that, but you can create a business around the national park and sell things. You, you know, it creates entrepreneurial spirit. But aside from tourism, it's really, really difficult. There's very little... Uh, out there that's that's proven so i've said in the past that it's the holy grail of the conservation sector for 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 the coming decades is how do you get access to new revenue streams for conserving wildlife and the luke hoffman institute is very active in this space um, i'm personally active in this space and in the projects but i'll tell you there's a there's a lot of attempts but it's it's not cracked yet so it's, it's do you think needed. we might be missing some some regulation here? Like, um, I can imagine um, making maybe some analogies to to the CO two emission sector, where the government says, okay, now you need to be paying, so we keep the numbers low. Um, I, I can imagine the same happening for different um, environmental metrics like biodiversity. Do you see any any potential in it or? Is this something that it's really missing, or it simply doesn't make any sense? So I, um, I, I, I share your view very much. I do think it's missing. In fact, I, I've, as I said, I was, I'm a trained political scientist, and and that's something that I, and <clears throat> before I, before I worked for the Luke Hoffman Institute, I worked for eight years in the international policy team at WWF International. So 
what we did there was try to influence international treaties that would then trickle down. And we worked with the offices in the countries to try and translate that into laws and regulations. And we were constantly under fire for, you know, hardcore conservationist boots on the ground for like, you know, what you're doing isn't real conservation, et cetera. I'm being a little bit facetious, but, um, but we, we really held strongly to the belief, and there were a number of us, um, that in fact, these international conventions lead to things. And you give a very, very concrete example. There is a market for carbon. You know, and, and, and we take it for granted now. There's a, now where there's a lot of innovation is how to tap into that, um, carbon marketplace. And, and I see a lot of promise in that, especially in projects that, um, try to weave in biodiversity. Um, there's a really interesting project out there. I think it's called Regenerate Earth. And, and they, they, um, they actually start with that two million, uh, figure for the whale. And they try to use blockchain to try and monetize that and bring it on uh, via the verification system of blockchain, et cetera. You still need to bring it on chain, but um, try to give it that. that the usual that, problem, yeah. The, yeah, exactly. It is. So anyway, so it's not perfect, but but to actually give it value. But, you know, we take it for granted. That market exists. And it was, as you say, created by, you know, fiat, if you want to be provocative. It was created by government decision, by government decree. Um there is no market for biodiversity. Should there be? I don't know. I mean, we, we can talk about that too. That's also maybe a little bit of a moral issue, but but clearly regulation plays a massive role. I mean, you can decide that this has, has value. You can decide um, something that we were working on is is um, in the Basel conventions, et cetera. There's, there's, um, banks have to have different risk uh, allocated. Who defines those risks? You know, regulations, governments. Um, what if suddenly you decided that something that had exposure to biodiversity or, or others was a higher risk than others? That shifts the, the balance sheet of all the central banks, therefore of all the banks. That's massive. You know, so there's, there's a whole bunch of tools. You can do reporting requirements for, stock, for um, publicly listed companies. Um, and you can go so far as to create a whole entire uh, market. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, there, there's subsidies too. I mean, it's, this is less biodiversity, but, um, a lot of subsidies going to agriculture could, for example, be given, uh, uh, a significant, there's a, tr there's a positive trend there, but it's clearly not enough and, and not nearly enough. And there's a lot of entrenched interests as there are other everywhere. Um, but agricultural policy subsidies, you know, that, that has a massive impact on biodiversity. You could decide to sponsor um, and I think this is the case in Switzerland, actually, where I live. Um, the the old stone walls; th those have massive biodiversity advantages to 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 no walls or or fences. I mean, fences are terrible, so that can definitely be regulation. There's 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 a lot that can be done. So you see, you got me started because I, I actually wrote my master's thesis on the the power of regulation to to change uh, markets, etc. So. But actually, I think that might be a part of the problem why business is not involved because uh, generally founders uh, that, that wants to run a business, they are kind of a bit afraid of entering a market that is highly regulated and is dominated by government regulations, for example, yeah. because it really doesn't allow them like, you know, the, this flexibility or freedom of act actions. So when you have to get involved with the government, obviously it's slowing down everything. And it might be one of the factors why it's so hard to find the success stories as well uh, from business perspective. Uh, and I fully understand that actually. Mm. I, I would have the same hesitation yeah. before uh, doing something there.
No, absolutely. I mean, in the financial sector, but the financial sector is massively regulated. It's crazily regulated. If you want, if you're if you're a founder in startup and fintech now, I mean, you know the the the, the complications, the, the the licenses you need that doesn't prevent people from doing it because there's a lot of money in there. Um, so I, I see your points, um, but no market is free of regulation. And if you know if if you're you know, massively hardcore, coldless capitalists, you would do things using slave labor or, you know, other sorts of things. So it's more a question of where do you draw the line um, as to what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Maybe a, another way to look at it is to say, this is my hopeful side, but you can assume that there's going to be more and more demand for nature conservation. There's going to be, especially as, as nature dwindles, unfortunately, um, there's going to be a, there's going to be increased regulation in the future. So if you're a founder now, why don't you try to anticipate that trend and do something which is actually already very compliant based on your standards? And then actually you can play a role as big industry plays now in setting those future regulations because you've got the track record. And so, yeah, I mean, I totally get your point that you know you you don't want to start a a, a company or or be in a, a market that's that's super regulated but if you spin it around and you say i'm going to be creating a whole new market a whole new economy and i'm going to participate in the in the regulation of that um when i'm a big enough uh, uh actor to have lobbyists then you know maybe that's a positive way of looking at it yeah, it's a change of mindset. Instead of seeing a problem, you see a challenge, right? <laughs> there you go. I'm, Opportunity. I'm super curious about your. Yeah. I'm super curious about your opinion about the timing. Like timing in uh, in the startup world is. Uh, some people mm. say it's uh, almost everything. And here, on one hand, um, we have no like strong incentives from from governments saying, okay, the biodiversity needs to go high, so there is no requirement to take care of that, uh, at least to not to the, to the extent that the business would care enough. Um, uh, but on the other hand, um, um, maybe there's still like, like a chance to start now. So I'm like just interested, mm -hmm. interested in your opinion about is, it, is the time right or is it too early or we need to wait for something and maybe get some regulations to, to get the thing going. Well, certainly sh waiting is not an option. That one I can dismiss. I mean, for the biodiversity... From the environmental perspective, from, I can from imagine. The, from yeah. the environmental perspective, that's clear. But even from the business perspective, why would you wait for the regulations? Um, you, as I said, you want, to, you want to be establishing the future standards. We've done a lot of research in terms of audiences and, and, and actually... Um, the emerging generations are much more conscious. Um, they're much more desirous, and they also say that they're they're ready to spend significant markup, up to twenty percent for ethical products. There's all sorts of numbers coming out there. Now, of course, that needs to translate into actual action. That's true, but there's a lot of research out there from a number of outfits that all point in the same direction. Um, millennials that are inheriting money are not acting the way that their parents were. Um, there's a massive transfer of wealth happening. Trillions of dollars are shifting hands to a younger generation that has different expectations for what business needs to do. So you can tap into all that whole new investor landscape. Um, and if you take it even further, Gen Z, um, which is still a bit of a, a mystery, of course, and, and, and there's a difference between saying things and actually doing things, but there's, a, there's actually a much bigger desire um, to be associated with brands that make a difference and have an impact. So those are trends we're getting away from the regulatory world, but those are clear trends. And yeah, you definitely don't want to wait on that. You want to be 
that brand that's associated with what Gen Z wants, for example, because inevitably Gen Z is, is, is also inheriting that, that, that money. Um, and they're the consumers. They're the future consumers. So I think if you're, if you're looking at the markets, um, my sense is you can go for the sort of the, you know, the old established money, or you can try and tap these future trends. And, and yeah, as I said, the research really points to, to optimism in that sector. Now, whether that will translate into real action is, 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 is the question, but at the same time, if Gen Z doesn't have those that ability to translate their 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 vision into something tangible, so meaning, you know, those companies that will make the that will make what they want to consume, if they don't have that, there's actually a a, a risk of a serious backlash, which is we really cared about environments. We tried, we voiced it, nobody heard us. Politicians didn't do the regulation. The big business didn't change the way they did business. The, the new business that we hoped for didn't emerge. You know, screw it. And, and, and there, there, there's, I think there's a very real um, possibility of a backlash, which would, be a, which would be quite bad. So I think it's, the time is, is really very opportune now. And what would you say about non-profit organization? Because like government and uh, consumers is one side of a, of a problem, but non-profits are the ones that are the most active in the area of nature conservation. And if, if we, uh, as we talked before, it's quite important for the business uh, part to get involved with non-profits. Are they already like there? Are they aware of the problem that they need to start, that they need the experience that comes from the business side? Because I know that they they have a different set of rules and they are got used to the way they are doing stuff, like, you know, uh, getting the money from charity, for example, instead of, you know, raising it from investors. So, for example, like, are they ready for this kind of an innovation uh, in the way of the that they are dealing uh, dealing things. So I think there's a risk to look at the sector as as a monolith. Um, there's different sorts of NGOs. Mm-hmm. Some are more innovative than others. Um, and then within NGOs, there's all sorts of things. Um, it's it's, but there is an emerging trend, I think, which is that we conservationists. I'll just put myself in that basket. We need new innovative approaches or else we're not going to succeed. And that includes um, being more business-like and using some of business business techniques. There's also pressure from, from donors, from foundations, from no- traditional um, charities, even governments to be more business-like. And you've got, you know, examples like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in, in the health sector. And you say, well, why can't you do things like that? It's a little bit Harder. I mean, the business case is, is a bit harder, as we discussed in the first part. Um, but there, but there's a strong pressure, and and it's and it's good pressure. It's it's legitimate pressure. Um, we do that. The institute we do a lot of projects, and that's one of the questions we always ask: is how, you know, how are you going to bring value? Yes, there's 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 um, cultural value. There's all these great values, and and we're going to be we're going to be focused on those. But how also are you looking at your revenue streams? There's I would say a good trend and tendency. But I, but I would say two things. One is, I, I, from anecdotal evidence, from my own experience, it's it's still quite a small minority, um, and also it's a question: Are we equipped? Even if you even if you click and you say, okay, well, actually, I, um, yeah, we we need we need to look at this innovatively, and we need to look at what possible revenue models we could have. We're not equipped. Uh, the, the the a person managing a natural park or 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 you know collecting DNA samples or all these things, they're not necessarily the person to do that. So you need to 
hire those people or work with partnerships. Um, but step one is realizing you have a problem, right? So, so I think that that's 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 starting to happen, and that's that's quite positive. Um, on the other hand, as I started um, your first question, you know, why why do we conserve nature? And I I said because it's beautiful. You also shouldn't lose sight. You know, it, there's a danger that you just slip completely in a model which is extract monetary value. Um, so you know, you don't want to lose that poetry, and you don't want to lose um, the importance of of the charitable gesture, which is I'm giving my wealth and I'm not expecting it back for something good. And, and that's a good aspect of human nature. You don't want to, you don't want to turn your back on that. Um, question is, how do you make them work together? And, and it's, it's, it's complicated. Um, when you think about it intellectually, abstractly, there's a massive case to be said. And I read it recently, but it was really eloquently written, but, um, you know, if, if, if philanthropic money can, can intervene very early to de-risk, and create that and, and take the risks it takes to try and achieve new things, markets, et cetera, then you become really appealing to the impact investors. And then ultimately, once you've gone that stage to the, to the, you know, the full-blown um, um, broad public investors. Um, but it's, yeah, it's easier said than done. And there are barriers. There's um, legal barriers. There's cultural barriers. There's yeah, mindsets. Um, it's, it's, not always easily done. Yeah, I think actually that's one of the things that business can learn from uh, conservationists uh, that how to not lose the goal from the side. Uh, it's something that we sometimes see uh, our founders are struggling with how to find the balance between the impact and the business purpose of the company and how to not, you know, set to put too much effort in the business, losing the impact somewhere on the way. And I think that might be something that. Uh, that actually uh, would be nice to hear more stories about how to not, how to focus more on the impact, but still doing the, the business. And that's something that uh, you can teach us, actually. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I we, hope we can. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, you're, you're accountable. To, I mean, everybody's accountable to somebody. I think my father once told me that. Um, you know, if, if you're accountable to your shareholders. And when, yeah, okay, if they're really wonderful shareholders that, um, value impact, even if it's really hard to quantify and, 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 you know, how many elephants did you save? I mean, I've had that question asked by, by, do by donors too, you know, because of the illicit wildlife, um, um, poaching campaign that we did. How many elephants did you, how do, how do you answer that question? It's really hard to measure impact. So if you've got shareholders, you know, you've got an accountability and you have to make money for your shareholders. Um, so there's that accountability. And in the in the nonprofit sector, it's very, very, very different game, but you're still very accountable. You're accountable to the government to explain why you deducted your taxes from that. So you can't be using that wealth to to make businesses richer necessarily. Now, you can if it serves your 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 statutes, et cetera. But you you know you get you get a sense that um, it's not necessarily intuitive. It is culturally maybe discouraged um it's it's difficult and we need people to take risks we've we've talking like uh, on a very like top level about uh, different different things different aspects of um what it means to conserve nature why is it important so what you what you briefly mentioned was um like different aspects of it and the fact that we should be we should be doing it for more reasons and also because nature is beautiful and i really like this answer i was expecting <laughs> maybe something more of in, in like in financial terms but this is actually the the yeah. best answer um um a better answer let's say to, to this to this question um 
you gave us also an, as an, an overview of, of, of different obstacles and also a lack of um, regulations uh, in this space, which is like a good and a bad thing, uh, depending on how you look at it. So we, we we should be thinking more about it as a challenge in a positive way to inspire people to, to try to tackle those problems. I also like this, uh, this way of, of, of seeing it. Uh, and also what was very important that you said about the timing, um, uh, that uh, consumers are ready. They, they want to have solutions that take into account things that are maybe as of today a bit difficult to measure. We did some progress when it comes to having different kind of metrics, like top-level metrics to, to make this uh, difficult to measure things uh, expressed in a number that it's somewhat understandable by people. I, I really like the, the example with, with the 20 degrees or 18 degrees. Um, yeah, and um, um, my last question is, if we were to think about a bit like low, um, about like low level next steps for uh, for our audience. So if I were a founder and I wanted wanted to start somewhere, maybe uh, my ideation process with um, uh, combining improving diversity with my business, or even maybe making um, an entire new business in this space. What would be your recommendation to to the places where I should be looking at, and where should I find my inspiration for um for different business models and and so on i mean um one that immediately came to mind so i won't overthink it is food um food systems you, you mentioned food waste but there's all sorts of, of um you know carbon footprints there's um there's all sorts of regenerative agriculture possibilities etc um that's a that's a nice kind of discrete area um which which mm -hmm. can have big impact Plastics is another. I mean, there there are companies out there that are that are trying to give new value to plastics. You're you're addressing kind of pollution in that in that case, but you're also indirectly tackling you know the the, the, the fossil fuel industry because you're you're recycling something which is continuously being produced as a byproduct of the fossil fuel world. Let's not forget that. Um, but the the real question I would have for founders is to apply that founding perspective and that daring and that risk-taking and, and, and business acumen to how can I marry current expectations with generating new revenue streams um, entirely, basically. I mean, because relying on, on existing markets, the food, the health, uh, um, you know, other, other things is quite promising in the short term. But I think there's 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 real promise in in trying to crack that other nut, which is how do we create the equivalent, for example, of the carbon market for biodiversity? That would be really cool because an academic mm -hmm. can an academic will give you an answer, politician will give you an answer. They they might work. They're probably a little bit boring. Um, if with a business mindset, that can be a really cool answer. Like, what it, is it dependent on um, a reputation and you, you package that? I, I, I don't know, but, but, but knowing that would be really interesting. There's a project we're working on now, which is tackling that question head on. And where we, so it started off as a project called Innovative Business Models for Impact. So in this we, we did it in 2018. And from that, we discussed, there's a company um, based in Nairobi called Internet of Elephants. They've been trying for some years to create games to raise awareness, but also, more importantly, raise funds for conservation. So we looked at, at the business model behind that. How do you, could you make that work? And where we got to um, was a, 
a feedback loop, a flywheel, if you want to talk in, in, in cool business words, that um, the conservation sector is actually sitting on a massive asset, wildlife. People like wildlife. They like charismatic species. They like, um, they like nature. Um, there's a whole bunch of people helping that. Instead of thinking in charitable terms, conservationists, NGOs, you think, know, okay, well, let's, let's spin that. Let's talk about conservation service providers. Okay, so they're, they're actually providing a service. That, that requires a, a mental shift. They're, they're providing the services, which is what people want. They want to see this nature thrive. Okay, so what are they doing? Well, they're, they're doing a whole bunch of, of conservation, but in the process, and this is where we focused, in the process, they're generating all this data, um, geolocation data, acceleration, um, you know, all, all sorts of you know, DNA, all sorts of data, a lot of data. So where we thought, with Internet of Elephants, the Lukofen Institute and Internet of Elephants, we, we got together and we're currently doing a project which we hope can be spun into an actual viable venture, which uses that data and and generates value add. We're focusing on games, um, but you can focus on other things. Uh, you can focus on storytelling. So you could imagine the, the movie industry or, or others. Um, I had a great conversation yesterday with an entrepreneur talking about using the art world to add value. But essentially the, the model is that you would give value to that data, package it in ways that people will actually purchase. I want the, this game or I want this this little nifty, um, what do you call them, skins in, in, in games. I mean, it's a massive industry. Games is 160 billion and, and growing. It's more than movies and books combined. And people spend a lot of money on, on in-game purchases. What if that was dependent on that data, for example? Or you could imagine health apps or in-flight um, in-flight entertainment systems. You're flying on a plane and, and, um, and you're flying over parks and these things appear, but, they, but it has to be real data. So then if people are willing to purchase that, which is, you know, that's a question. We have to go to market and, and figure that out. It has to be done well. Um, then it goes back to, the, to the purchasing the data and therefore the data providers. Now, this is just one element. There's an estimated 824 a billion dollar gap annually in conservation. That's the latest estimate. So the difference between what's needed. And so I, I'm not convinced that this in itself will plug the gap. But the idea behind that is that suddenly you've, you've changed mentalities. You've, you've shifted a lot of conservationists into providers of a service. You've given value to something which before didn't have value. And you're creating, where we talk about the conservation data marketplace, you create a, a, a demand, a whole market, an ecosystem around the data and therefore the underlying, the underlying service. So that, that's something that we're working on. That's after a long time of thinking, whether that's the answer or part of the answer, I don't know. But somebody who's a founder out there might think of something like that, might think of uh, something to build on. Um, yeah, and that's, that's around using gamification, but there's also virtual tourism, uh, VR, augmented reality, all sorts of things, leveraging social media, all sorts of ways to extract value for something that people actually care for. Um, you can imagine creating loyalty programs that, 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 that companies would really pay good value for because they can be associated with these good causes and, and, and that lives on the conservation, um, sector or other sectors so yeah we need we need um we need good ideation and we need very early stage risk and venture building in this sector because there is no real obvious answer aside from sort of tweaking around the edges or or, or going on to existing markets so
Yeah. We did an innovation what, challenge last year. What's the best place month. to... What's the best place? Well, so last year we did a partnership with the Africa Leadership University, which is a university in Africa that has the vision of being the Harvard of Africa, but, but, they're, but they're going at it um, quite differently. They're very decentralized. They're focused on the youth and they're focused on um, entrepreneurship. They're a very interesting uh, group. With them, we did an innovation challenge and we focused on the very, very early stages. We said, okay, we're looking for innovators to come up with models that do not rely on tourism to give benefits to local communities from wildlife conservation. That was really, really cool. We spent a lot of time designing um, how who we reached, how we phrased what the criteria were, because it was super important to get that in really right. But it was very successful. We had, I think, 500 applicants. We selected 15, and it was, it was tough. They're pitching very shortly. Um, uh, late September, they're pitching to real investors after having gone through an incubation program with the ALU. But those kinds of things are cool, but you can't just sort of, th- well, maybe you can, but it's it's a different approach than throwing money at a problem, saying, I'll give you a million dollars if you solve this. It's it's spending a lot of time on the very, very early stage. I think that's needed in the conservation sector. Um, you have to really co-create in our world. That's that's a buzzword in our world. You have to co-create what that, that problem statement is. What are the conservation pain points and what are the customer pain points? The conservation pain points, we can kind of answer that. What are the consumer pain points? Um, founders, um, investors, they know better. So how do those, you know, how do those people talk to to try and create new innovative models that you know utilize these future trends? That's that's I think where we can um, be concrete. I think this is like a, a very, the most comprehensive recommendation I, I've heard recently. Uh, so what I got from it was two things: the the low hanging fruits, if we can even call them low hanging fruits, maybe it's a bit of an exaggeration or let's say in the food system, like regenerative farming, all sorts of solutions that might help um, tackling CO2 emissions, uh, but also obviously there's lots of other problems in, in the agriculture space. But the second uh, idea that you mentioned, and it's really sparked my uh, inspiration, uh, is the, 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 the kind of biodiversity of nature as a basis, as a foundation for new markets and new industries. Uh, for instance, because of the data that we could collect and um, monetize in all sorts of way, in all sorts of different products, also in, in different industries. So um, this is uh, this is what I was going to ask. Like, uh, this is the project that you run. Is 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 there any place where um, uh, people can can read or learn a, a bit more about it, or this is something that you still do internally? Um, I'm, I'm super curious if if we could be able to provide some websites, some documents to to our audience. Yeah, it's it's external. Um, so in, in, I never really answered your your first question on what the Lukoffen Institute does. So I probably should. Um, we we generally say we incubate projects, and we say we have three phases: one is ideation, one incubation, one acceleration. Not rocket science, right? But we we emphasize really the ideation by generating new knowledge, um, reports. We get mm-hmm. people together. We have meetings, etc. Um, mm-hmm. That's what we call thought leadership as well. And that's what um, the innovative business models thing was in 2018. If we're successful at that, which obviously we're not successful every time because you have to take some risks, um, you meet really cool external people who will take on the the burden, if you will, or the honor of of meeting that that challenge and opportunity. 
In that case, it was uh, Gautam Shah, who is the founder of Internet of Elephants, and said, okay, well, I want to do this. And so we entered an incubation phase. That phase ends early October. By the end of that, we should have something which is, if not directly investable, at least compelling. And and then we can also use mm-hmm. um, investors, founders, people with a business background. I mean, we're, we're not disconnected from that world completely, obviously, but... Um, to, to, to jump in. So that's one way. Um, there's the, if successful, if, if the actual vision is successful, then you're going to need a whole ecosystem around that. You're going to need a whole, you, we're, we're not saying Internet of Elephants is not saying we will build all of the solutions based on this database. We just want to create it. And so there might be a whole bunch of things that come out of there. And, oh, I want to do an in-flight entertainment system. I want to do a health app. I want to do fine arts and NFTs. It doesn't matter as long as it relies on the actual data behind it. So um, there's a number of ways in which people can be involved. Um, if they go to the Luke Hoffman Institute website, they'll see the project. As we record this today, we just have a report that's come out on gamification. So uh, is up on the website. So you can look at that. We also have an event um, this coming Tuesday, but I'm not sure when this is put on. So we, you know, there there are things. If if you're involved, if you follow the institute or myself on LinkedIn, you'll get this this information uh, as it happens. But in the early October, we would like to have investors look at this deck. We've got some um, to look at it. If yeah, if there are others who are interested in either this specific projects or other such approaches, then yeah, and even if it doesn't lead to to, to anything on this project, it can lead to ideating new ones. So in the process we have in the thought leadership at the very early stages, having that business investor mentality is really important. So for future projects also, uh, for people who are interested in, in thinking about these issues and identifying opportunities, then yeah, please get in touch and we can, uh, we can invite you to some of those meetings. Thank you so much, Adrian, for our recommendations and uh, sharing your uh, expertise today. I must say I'm really inspired. I'm, I'm just immediately after the, uh, the recording, I'm definitely going to check the links that, that you mentioned. We're going to add them um, below the, uh, the video and, and um, in, the, in the notes to, to our podcast. This is really super interesting. Um, Kasia, any other questions? No, I just wanted to say thank you and definitely I'm going to explore the, the topic even further because uh, I think there's a huge opportunity, not only for founders, but business-wise people uh, to, to deep dive into the, the problem of nature conservation. And uh, for me, if personally, it's just fascinating. The opportunities that never been there and now they are just opening up. It's just so refreshing to like uh, get a, a perspective from, from someone like um, tackling those problems from a very different angle than what we uh, see on a daily basis. So... Uh, thank you so much, Adrian, uh, one more time for the conversation. And thank you for all to all the listeners. Um, and just stay tuned for the next episode. 